section 52. But here the diatribe will sharply retort Ecclesiasticus by saying, If thou wilt keep, signifies that there is a will in man to keep and not to keep. Otherwise, what is the use of saying unto him who has no will, If thou wilt? Would it not be ridiculous if any were to say to a blind man, If thou wilt see, thou mayest find a treasure? Or to a deaf man, If thou wilt hear, I will relate to thee an excellent story. This would be to laugh at their misery. I answer, These are the arguments of human reason, which is wont to shoot forth many such sprigs of wisdom. Wherefore, I must dispute now, not with Ecclesiasticus, but with human reason, concerning a conclusion, for she by her conclusions and syllogisms interprets and twists the scriptures of God just which way she pleases. But I will enter upon this willingly and with confidence, knowing that she can prate nothing but follies and absurdities, and that more especially when she attempts to make a show of her wisdom in these divine matters. First then, if I should demand of her how it can be proved that the freedom of the will in man is signified and inferred, wherever these expressions are used, if thou wilt, if thou shalt do, if thou shalt hear, she would say, because the nature of words and the common use of speech among men seem to require it. Therefore, she judges of divine things and words according to the customs and things of men, than which what can be more perverse, seeing that the former things are heavenly, the latter earthly. Like a fool, therefore, she exposes herself, making it manifest that she has not a thought concerning God, but what is human. But what if I prove that the nature of words and the use of speech even among men are not always of that tendency as to make a laughing stock of those to whom it is said, If thou wilt, if thou shalt do it, if thou shalt hear. How often do parents thus play with their children when they bid them come to them or do this or that for this purpose only that it may plainly appear to them how unable they are to do it and that they may call for the aid of the parent's hand. How often does a faithful physician bid his obstinate patient do or omit these things which are either injurious to them or impossible to the intent that he may bring him by an experience to the knowledge of his disease or his weakness? And what is more general and common than to use words of insult or provocation when we would show either enemies or friends what they can do and what they cannot do? I merely go over these things to show reason her own conclusions and how absurdly she tacks them to the scriptures. Moreover, how blind she must be not to see that they do not always stand good even in human words and things. But the case is, if she see it to be done once, she rushes on headlong, taking it for granted that it is done generally in all the things of God and men thus making, according to the way of her wisdom, of a particularity, a universality. If then God, as a father, deal with us as with sons, that he might show us who are in ignorance or impotency, or as a faithful physician, that he might make our disease known unto us, or that he might insult his enemies who proudly resist his counsel, and for this end, say to us by proposed laws, as being those means by which he accomplishes his design the most effectually. Do, hear, keep, or 
if thou wilt, if thou wilt do, if thou wilt hear. Can this be drawn here from as a just conclusion? Therefore, either we have free power to act or God laughs at us? Why is this not rather drawn as a conclusion? Therefore, God tries us that by his law he might bring us to a knowledge of our impotency if we be his friends or he thereby righteously and deservedly insults and derides us if we be his proud enemies. For this, as Paul teaches, is the intent of the divine legislation. Romans 3.20, 5.20, Galatians 3.19 and 24. Because human nature is blind so that it knows not its own powers or rather its own diseases. Moreover, being proud, it self-conceitedly imagines that it knows and can do all things. To remedy which pride and ignorance, God can use no means more effectual than his proposed law, of which we shall say more in its place. Let it suffice to have thus touched upon it here. To refute this conclusion of carnal and absurd wisdom, if thou wilt, therefore thou art able to will freely. The diatribe dreams that man is whole and sound, as to human appearance he is in his own affairs. And therefore, from these words, if thou wilt, if thou wilt do, if thou wilt hear, it pertly argues that man, if his will be not free, is laughed at. Whereas the scripture describes man as corrupt and a captive, and added to that as proudly contemning and ignorant of his corruption and captivity. And therefore, by those words, it goads him and rouses him up that he might know by a real experience how unable he is to do any one of those things. Section 53 But I will attack the diatribe itself. If thou really think, O madam reason, that these conclusions stand good, if thou wilt, therefore thou hast a free power, why dost thou not follow the same thyself? For thou sayest, according to that probable opinion, that free will cannot will anything good. But by what conclusion then can such a sentiment flow from this passage also, if thou wilt keep, when thou sayest that the conclusion flowing from this is that man can will and not will freely? What? Can bitter and sweet flow from the same fountain? Dost thou not hear much more deride man thyself, when thou sayest that he can keep that which he can neither will nor choose? Therefore, neither dost thou from thy heart believe that this is a just conclusion. If thou wilt, therefore thou hast a free power. Although thou contendest for it with so much zeal, or if thou dost believe it, then thou dost not from thy heart say that that opinion is probable which holds that man cannot will good. Thus reason is so caught in the conclusions and words of her own wisdom that she knows not what she says, nor concerning what she speaks, nay, knows nothing but that which it is most right she should know, that free will is defended with such arguments as mutually devour and put an end to each other. Just as the Midianites destroyed each other by mutual slaughter when they fought against Gideon and the people of God, Judges 7.
Nay, I will expostulate more fully with this wisdom of the diatribe. Ecclesiasticus does not say, if thou shalt have the desire and the endeavor of keeping, for this is not to be ascribed to that power of yours, as you have concluded, but he says, if thou wilt keep the commandments, they shall preserve thee. Now then, if we, after the manner of your wisdom, wish to draw conclusions, we should infer thus. Therefore, man is able to keep the commandments. And thus, we shall not here make a certain small degree of desire, or a certain little effort of endeavor to be left in man, but we shall ascribe unto him the whole, full, and abundant power of keeping the commandments. Otherwise, Ecclesiasticus will be made to laugh at the misery of man as commanding him to keep who he knows is not able to keep. Nor would it have been sufficient if he had supposed the desire and the endeavor to be in the man, for he would not then have escaped the suspicion of deriding him unless he had signified his having the full power of keeping. But, however... Let us suppose that that desire and endeavor of free will are a real something. What shall we say to those, the Pelagians, I mean, who from this passage have denied grace in toto and ascribed all to free will? If the conclusion of the diatribe stand good, the Pelagians have evidently established their point. For the words of Ecclesiasticus speak of keeping not of desiring or endeavoring. If, therefore, you deny the Pelagians their conclusion concerning keeping, they, in reply, will much more rightly deny you your conclusion concerning endeavoring. And if you take from them the whole of free will, they will take from you your remnant particle of it, for you cannot assert a remnant particle of that which you deny in toto. In what degree soever, therefore, you speak against the Pelagians, who from this passage describe the whole to free will, in the same degree and with much more determination shall we speak against that certain small remnant desire of your free will. And in this, the Pelagians themselves will agree with us that if their opinion cannot be proved from this passage, much less will any other of the same kind be proved from it, seeing that if the subject be to be conducted by conclusions... Ecclesiasticus, above all, makes the most forcibly for the Pelagians, for he speaks in plain words concerning keeping only. If thou wilt keep the commandments, nay, he speaks also concerning faith. If thou wilt keep the faith, so that by the same conclusion, keeping the faith ought also to be in our power, which, however, is the peculiar and precious gift of God. In a word, since so many opinions are brought forward in support of free will, and there is no one that does not catch at this passage of Ecclesiasticus in defense of itself, and since they are diverse from and contrary to each other, it is impossible but that they must make Ecclesiasticus contrary to and diverse from themselves in the self-same words. And therefore, they can from him prove nothing. Although, if that conclusion of yours be admitted, it will make for the Pelagians against all the others, and, consequently, it makes against the diatribe, which, in this passage, is stabbed by its own sword. Section 54 But, as I said at first, 
so I say here. This passage of Ecclesiasticus is in favor of no one of those who assert free will, but makes against them all. For that conclusion is not to be admitted, if thou wilt, therefore thou art able. But those words, and all like unto them, are to be understood thus, that by them man is admonished of his impotency, which, without such admonitions, being proud and ignorant, he would neither know nor feel. For he here speaks, not concerning the first man only, but concerning any man though it is of little consequence whether you understand it concerning the first man or any others. For although the first man was not impotent from the assistance of grace, yet by this commandment God plainly shows him how impotent he would be without grace. For if that man who had the Spirit could not by his new will, will good newly proposed, that is, obedience, because the Spirit did not add it unto him, What can we do without the Spirit toward the good that is lost? In this man, therefore, it is shown by a terrible example for the breaking down of our pride, what our free will can do when it is left to itself and not continually moved and increased by the Spirit of God. He could do nothing to increase the Spirit who had its first fruits but fell from the first fruits of the Spirit. What then can we who are fallen do towards the first fruits of the Spirit which are taken away? Especially since Satan now reigns in us with full power, who cast him down, not then reigning in him, but by temptation alone. Nothing can be more forcibly brought against free will than this passage of Ecclesiasticus, considered together with the fall of Adam. But we have no room for these observations here. An opportunity may perhaps offer itself elsewhere. Meanwhile, it is sufficient to have shown that Ecclesiasticus, in this place, says nothing whatsoever in favor of free will, which, nevertheless, they consider as their principal authority. And that these expressions and the like, if thou wilt, if thou hear, if thou do, show not what men can do, but what they ought to do. Section 55. Another passage is adduced by our diatribe out of Genesis 4-7, where the Lord saith unto Cain, Under thee shall be the desire of sin, and thou shalt rule over it. Here it is shown, saith the diatribe, that the motions of the mind evil can be overcome, and that they do not carry with them the necessity of sinning. These words the motions of the mind to evil can be overcome, though spoken with ambiguity, yet from the scope of the sentiment, the consequence, and the circumstances must mean this, that free will has the power of overcoming its motions to evil, and that those motions do not bring upon it the necessity of sinning. Here again, what is there accepted which is not ascribed unto free will? What need is there of the Spirit? What need of Christ? What need of God? If free will can overcome the motions of the mind evil. And where again is that probable opinion which affirms that free will cannot so much as will good? For here the victory over evil is ascribed unto that which neither wills nor wishes for good. 
The inconsiderateness of our diatribe is really too, too bad. Take the truth of the matter in a few words. As I have before observed by such passages as these, it is shown to man what he ought to do, not what he can do. It is said, therefore, unto Cain that he ought to rule over his sin and to hold its desires in subjection under it. But this he neither did nor could do because he was already pressed down under the contrary dominion of Satan. It is well known that the Hebrews frequently use the future indicative for the imperative, as in Exodus 20, 1-17. Thou shalt have none other gods but me. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And in numberless other instances of the same kind. Otherwise, if these sentences were taken indicatively, as they really stand, they would be promises of God. And, as he cannot lie, it would come to pass that no man could sin. And then, as commands, they would be unnecessary. And if this were the case, then our interpreter would have translated this passage more correctly thus, Let its desire be under thee, and rule thou over it. Genesis 4.7 Even as it then ought also to be said concerning the woman, Be thou under thy husband, and let him rule over thee. Genesis 3.16 But that it was not spoken indicatively unto Cain is manifest from this. It would then have been a promise. Whereas it was not a promise, because from the conduct of Cain, the event proved the contrary. Section 56 The third passage is from Moses, Deuteronomy 30, 19. I have set before thy face life and death. Choose what is good, etc. What words, says the diatribe, can be more plain? It leaves the man the liberty of choosing. I answer, what is more plain than that you are blind? How, I pray, does it leave the liberty of choosing? Is it by the expression, choose? Therefore, as Moses saith, choose, does it immediately come to pass that they do choose? Then there is no need of the Spirit. And as you so often repeat and inculcate the same things, I shall be justified in repeating the same things also. If there be a liberty of choosing, why has the probable opinion said that free will cannot will good? Can it choose not willing? or against its will? But let us listen to the similitude. It would be ridiculous to say to a man standing in a place where two ways met, thou seest two roads, go by which thou wilt, when one only was open. This, as I have before observed, is from the arguments of human reason, which thinks that a man is mocked by a command impossible. Whereas I say, that the man, by this means, is admonished and roused to see his own impotency. True it is that we are in a place where two ways meet, and that one of them only is open. Yea, rather, neither of them is open. But by the law it is shown how impossible the one is, that is, to good, unless God freely give his spirit, and how wide and easy the other is, if God leave us to ourselves. Therefore, it would not be said ridiculously, but with a necessary seriousness, 
to the man thus standing in a place where two ways meet, go by which thou wilt. If he, being in reality impotent, wished to seem to himself strong, or contended that neither way was hedged up. Wherefore, the words of the law are spoken, not that they might assert the power of the will, but that they might illuminate the blindness of reason, that it might see that its own light is nothing, and that the power of the will is nothing. By the law, saith Paul, is the knowledge of sin. Romans 3.20 He does not say, is the abolition of or the escape from sin. The whole nature and design of the law is to give knowledge only, and that of nothing else save of sin, but not to discover or communicate any power whatsoever. For knowledge is not power, nor does it communicate power, but it teaches and shows how great the impotency must there be where there is no power. And what else can the knowledge of sin be but the knowledge of our evil and infirmity? For he does not say, by the law comes the knowledge of strength or of good. The whole that the law does, according to the testimony of Paul, is to make known sin. And this is the place where I take occasion to enforce this my general reply. That man, by the words of the law, is admonished and taught what he ought to do, not what he can do. That is, that he is brought to know his sin, but not to believe that he has any strength in himself. Wherefore, friend Erasmus, as often as you throw in my teeth the words of the law, so often I throw in yours that of Paul. By the law is the knowledge of sin, not of the power of the will. Heap together, therefore, out of the large concordances all the imperative words into one chaos, provided that they be not words of the promise, but of the requirement of the law only, and I will immediately declare that by them is always shown what men ought to do, not what they can do or do do. And even common grammarians, and every little schoolboy in the street knows that by verbs of the imperative mood, nothing else is signified than that which ought to be done, and that what is done or can be done is expressed by verbs of the indicative mood. Thus, therefore, it comes to pass that you theologians are so senseless and so many degrees below even schoolboys that when you have caught hold of one imperative verb, you infer an indicative sense, as though what was commanded were immediately and even necessarily done, or possible to be done. But how many slips are there between the cup and the lip? So that what you command to be done, and is therefore quite possible to be done, is yet never done at all. Such a difference is there between verbs imperative and verbs indicative, even in the most common and easy things. Whereas you, in these things which are as far above those as the heavens are above the earth, so quickly make indicatives out of imperatives that the moment you hear the voice of him commanding, saying, do, keep, choose, you will have that it is immediately kept, done, chosen, or fulfilled, or that our powers are able so to do. Section 57. In the fourth place, you adduce from Deuteronomy 30, 
many passages of the same kind which speak of choosing, of turning away from, of keeping, as if thou shalt keep, if thou shalt turn away from, if thou shalt choose. All these expressions, you say, are made use of preposterously if there be not a free will in man unto good. I answer, and you, friend diatribe, preposterously enough also conclude from these expressions the freedom of the will. You set out to prove the endeavor and desire of free will only, and you have adduced no passage which proves such an endeavor. But now you adduce those passages which, if your conclusion hold good, will ascribe all to free will. Let me here then again make a distinction between the words of the scripture adduced and the conclusion of the diatribe tacked to them. The words adduced are imperative, and they say nothing but what ought to be done. For Moses does not say, Thou hast the power and strength to choose. The words choose, keep, do, convey the precept to keep, but they do not describe the ability of man. But the conclusion tacked to them by that wisdom-aping diatribe infers thus. Therefore, man can do those things, otherwise the precepts are given in vain. To whom this reply must be made, Madam Diatribe, you make a bad inference and do not prove your conclusion. But the conclusion and the proof merely seem to be right to your blind and inadvertent self. But know that these precepts are not given preposterously nor in vain, but that proud and blind man might by them learn the disease of his own impotency if he should attempt to do what is commanded. And hence your similitude amounts to nothing where you say. Otherwise it would be precisely the same as if anyone should say to a man who was so bound that he could only stretch forth his left arm, Behold, thou hast on thy right hand excellent wine, thou hast on thy left poison, on which thou wilt stretch forth thy hand. These your similitudes, I presume, are particular favorites of yours. But you do not all the while see that if the similitudes stand good, they prove much more than you ever purpose to prove. Nay, that they prove what you deny and would have to be disproved, that free will can do all things. For by the whole scope of your argument, forgetting what you said, that free will can do nothing without grace, you actually prove that free will can do all things without grace. For your conclusions and similitudes go to prove this that either free will can of itself do those things which are said and commanded, or they are commanded in vain, ridiculously and preposterously. But these are nothing more than the old songs of the Pelagians sung over again, which even the sophists have exploded and which you have yourself condemned. And by all this, your forgetfulness and disorder of memory, you do nothing but evidence how little you know of the subject and how little you are affected by it. And what can be worse in a rhetorician than to be continually bringing forward things wide of the nature of the subject, and not only so, but to be always declaiming against his subject and against himself? Section 58. 
Wherefore, I observe, finally, the passages of Scripture adduced by you are imperative and neither prove anything nor determine anything concerning the ability of man, but enjoin only what things are to be done and what are not to be done. And as to your conclusions or appendages and similitudes, if they prove anything, they prove this, that free will can do all things without grace. Whereas this you did not undertake to prove, nay, it is by you denied. Wherefore, these your proofs are nothing else but the most direct confutations. For, that I may, if I can, rouse the diatribe from its lethargy, suppose I argue thus, if Moses say, choose life and keep the commandment, unless man be able to choose life and keep the commandment, Moses gives that precept to man ridiculously. Have I, by this argument, proved my side of the subject that free will can do nothing good and that it has no external endeavor separate from its own power? Nay, on the contrary, I have proved by an assertion sufficiently forcible that either man can choose life and keep the commandment as it is commanded, or Moses is a ridiculous lawgiver. But who would dare to assert that Moses was a ridiculous lawgiver? It follows, therefore, that man can do the things that are commanded. This is the way in which the diatribe argues throughout, contrary to its own purpose design, wherein it promised that it would not argue thus, but would prove a certain endeavor of free will, of which, however, so far from proving it, it scarcely makes mention in the whole string of its arguments. Nay, it proves the contrary, rather so that it may itself be more properly said to affirm and argue all things ridiculously. And as to its making it, according to its own adduced similitude, to be ridiculous, that a man, having his right arm bound, should be ordered to stretch forth his right hand when he could only stretch forth his left, would it, I pray, be ridiculous if a man, having both his arms bound and proudly contending or ignorantly presuming that he could do anything right or left, should be commanded to stretch forth his hand right and left, not that his captivity might be derided, but that he might be convinced of his false presumption of liberty and power, and might be brought to know his ignorance of his captivity and misery. The diatribe is perpetually setting before us such a man who either can do what is commanded, or at least knows that he cannot do it. Whereas, no such man is to be found. If there were such an one, then indeed either impossibilities would be ridiculously commanded or the Spirit of Christ would be in vain. The Scripture, however, sets forth such a man who is not only bound, miserable, captive, sick, and dead, but who, by the operation of his Lord, Satan, to his other miseries, adds that of blindness, so that he believes he is free, happy, at liberty, powerful, whole, and alive. For Satan well knows that if men knew their own misery, he could retain no one of them in his kingdom, because it could not be but that God would immediately pity and succor their known misery and calamity, seeing that he is with so much praise set forth throughout the whole scripture as being near unto the contrite in heart that Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 testifies that Christ was sent to preach the gospel to the poor and to heal 
the brokenhearted. Wherefore, the work of Satan is so to hold men that they come not to know their misery, but that they presume that they can do all things which are enjoined. But the work of Moses, the legislator, is the contrary, even that by the law he might discover to man his misery, in order that he might prepare him, thus bruised and confounded with the knowledge of himself, for grace, and might send him to Christ to be saved. Wherefore, the office of the law is not ridiculous, but above all things serious and necessary. Those, therefore, who thus far understand these things, understand clearly at the same time that the diatribe, by the whole string of its arguments, affects nothing whatever, that it collects nothing from the Scriptures but imperative passages when it understands neither what they mean nor wherefore they are spoken, and that, moreover, by the appendages of its conclusions and carnal similitudes, it mixes up such a mighty mass of flesh that it asserts and proves more than it ever intended and argues even against itself, so that there were no need to pursue particulars any further, for the whole is solved by one solution, seeing that the whole depends on one argument. But however, that it may be drowned in the same profusion in which it attempted to drown me, I will proceed to touch upon a few particulars more. Section 59 There is that of Isaiah 1.19 if ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the fat of the land. Where, according to the judgment of the diatribe, if there be no liberty of the will, it would have been more consistent had it been said, if I will, if I will not. The answer to this may be plainly found in what has been said before. Moreover, what consistency would there have been had it been said, if I will, ye shall eat the fat of the land. Does the diatribe from its so highly exalted wisdom imagine that the fat of the land can be eaten contrary to the will of God? Or that it is a rare and new thing that we do not receive of the fat of the land but by the will of God? So also that of Isaiah 30:21, If ye will inquire, inquire ye, return, come. To what purpose is it, saith the diatribe, to exhort those who are not in any degree in their own power? It is just like saying to one bound in chains, Move thyself to this place. Nay, I reply, to what purpose is it to cite passages which of themselves prove nothing, and which, by the appendage of your conclusion, that is, by the perversion of their sense, ascribe all unto free will, when a certain endeavor only was to be ascribed unto it, and to be proved? The same may be said, you observe, concerning that of Isaiah 45.20. Assemble yourselves and come. Turn ye unto me, and ye shall be saved. And that also of Isaiah 52, 1 through 2. Awake, awake, shake thyself from the dust. Loose the bands of thy neck. And that of Jeremiah fifteen nineteen. If thou wilt turn, then will I turn thee. And if thou shalt separate the precious from the vile, thou shalt be as my mouth. And Malachi more evidently still indicates the endeavor of free will and the grace that is prepared for him who endeavors. Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord. Malachi 3.7 Section 60 
In these passages, our friend Diatribe makes no distinction, whatever, between the voice of the law and the voice of the gospel. Because, forsooth, it is so blind and so ignorant that it knows not what is the law and what is the gospel. For out of all the passages from Isaiah, it produces no one word of the law save this, If thou wilt. All the rest is gospel, by which, as the word of offered grace, the bruised and afflicted are called unto consolation. Whereas the diatribe makes them the words of the law. But I pray thee, tell me, what can that man do in theological matters and the sacred writings who has not even gone so far as to know what is law and what is gospel? Or who, if he does know, condemns the observance of the distinction between them? Such an one must confound all things, heaven with hell and life with death and will never labor to know anything of Christ. Concerning which, I shall put my friend Diatribe a little in remembrance in what follows. Look then first at that of Jeremiah and Malachi. If thou wilt turn, then will I turn thee. And turn ye unto me, and I will turn unto you. Does it then follow from, Turn ye, therefore ye are able to turn? Does it follow also from, Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, therefore thou art able to love with all thine heart? If these arguments stand good, what do they conclude but that free will needs not the grace of God, but can do all things of its own power? And how much more right would it be that the words should be received as they stand, If thou shalt turn, then will I also turn thee? That is, if thou shalt cease from sinning, I also will cease from punishing. And if thou shalt be converted and live well, I also will do well unto thee in turning away thy captivity and thy evils. But even in this way, it does not follow that man can turn by his own power, nor do the words imply this. But they simply say, If thou wilt turn, by which a man is admonished of what he ought to do. And when he has thus known and seen what he ought to do, but cannot do, he would ask how he is to do it were it not for that leviathan of the diatribe, that is, that appendage and conclusion it has here tacked on, which comes in and between and says, Therefore, if man cannot turn of his own power, turn ye, is spoken in vain. But of what nature all such conclusion is, and what it amounts to, has been already fully shown. It must, however, be a certain stupor or lethargy which could hold that the power of free will is confirmed by these words, Turn ye, if thou wilt turn, and the like, and does not see that for the same reason it must be confirmed by this scripture also, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, seeing that the meaning of him who commands and requires is the same in both instances. For the loving of God is not less required than our conversion and the keeping of all the commandments, because the loving of God is our real conversion. And yet no one attempts to prove free will from that command to love. Although from those words, If thou wilt, if thou wilt hear, turn ye, and the like, all attempt to prove it. If therefore from that word, Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, it does not follow that free will is anything or can do anything. It is certain that it neither follows from these words, If thou wilt, if thou wilt hear, turn ye, and the like, which either require less or require with less force of importance than these words, love God, love the Lord.
whatever therefore is said against drawing a conclusion in support of free will from this word love God the same must be said against drawing a conclusion in support of free will from every other word of command or requirement for it is well known that even the schoolmen except the Scotinians and moderns assert that man cannot love God with all his heart therefore neither can he perform any one of the other precepts for all the rest according to the testimony of Christ hang on this one hence by the testimony even of the doctors of the schools this remains as a settled conclusion that the words of the law do not prove the power of free will but show what we ought to do and what we cannot do this Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com or by phone at 780-450-3730 or by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and texts, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you.